Thank you very much for that. So let me uh, introduce myself for a moment for those of you who haven't uh, heard me speak before. My name's Kate Middleton. Just to clear up any confusion, I have not had a baby. I am not attending a wedding next weekend. We'll fill in all other Kate Middleton jokes at your leisure. <laughs> so I am a psychologist by background. I'm also a church leader in um, Hitchin in Hertfordshire. So I'm on the pastoral team there. I'm also one of the directors of the Mind and Soul Foundation. And you've got the pleasure this afternoon of hearing from uh, three of us, from myself and my colleague Will, live and beamed by the power of video uh, from New Zealand, my colleague uh, Rob, who you're going to hear from in a minute. If you're interested in the Mind and Soul Foundation, we are passionate about the, the interface of mental and emotional health and the church, and encouraging the church to engage with issues of mental and emotional health, not just the messy bits when it goes wrong, but also the aspects of how do we develop really positive emotional health? How do we work well with our own minds? How do we get the best out, the best out of this brain that God has designed and given us? Um, how do we maintain really good emotional health. So do check out our website. You can see the banners over there and there are some postcards on the table. So please do take one home with you so that you can go and have a look at our website. We have lots of information and links to great resources and um, articles, podcasts, all kinds of things on there to, to do with this whole wide topic of mental and emotional health. So check that out later. One of my personal passions in working uh, in this whole field is that I do a lot of work with youth leaders, with children and young people. I have the privilege of working with some amazing organizations across this country who are doing fantastic pioneering work with young people. And I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the use of mindfulness, therefore, in those contexts. So a slight change of direction now to think about some of the applications of this approach, which we may have found so helpful in our own spiritual journeys. But how can we use it with other people? Some of you here will be practitioners, therapists, counselors, um, church leaders, pastoral care team members, all kinds of different roles that you will have. How can we use this with some of the people who we encounter? How can we help people with the challenges that everyday life is throwing at them? And with children and young people really in our current culture, what we have is, is a massive challenge in terms of just the level of emotional and mental health distress that we're seeing in this group. And I've been working in this field really for almost, two, well, I was going to say almost two decades, but that challenges me about how old I'm getting. So uh, let's pretend that it's not two decades and that I haven't aged at all. But uh, I have actually been working in this field for nearly two decades. And the change over that time has been quite dramatic, both in terms of just the sheer volume of emotional distress that we're seeing in children and young people, but also in the age of onset and the stories that I'm hearing, where we're now in a place where not only are these, some of these issues very common, but also they're affecting genuinely everybody, all kinds of families, all kinds of backgrounds. There really is nobody who is immune to the potential challenge of mental and emotional health distress in their children, in their young people. And many of you will have worked in contexts where you've come across this. So in this context, we have to ask ourselves, 
a question about why, and I haven't got time to go into this, maybe you can debate it at coffee time, but you'll have heard this generation referred to as the snowflake generation. Is this just that we have a group of young people, you can pop up the nice snowflake slide there, um, who are in some way just more vulnerable? I have a 13-year-old daughter. She would love to tell you why they are not a snowflake generation. But many people would suggest that they are. Is there just something about this generation of children and young people that mean they're, they're struggling to cope with just the everyday normal challenges of life? Or is there something about the pressure that they're under? Is there actually something about the life that they're growing up in, the, the, the culture, the environment? You can pop the, the next slide up here. Um, that is unusual, that is different, that is more challenging, for example, than the world that we grew up in. And we could discuss some of the, the things that they do face around social media, some of the challenges that they have there, some of the changes in terms of the landscape, some of the pressures that are upon them. We could talk about exam culture, school culture, culture, um, policy and philosophy in so many different areas as we think about this. But the, the facts really do speak for themselves, so I will run through just a few of them. Most of you will be aware of some of these. We know, for example, that a quarter of teenagers will have experienced depression by the time that they are 19. So we're seeing very high rates of dep- depression and um, struggles in that age group. Uh, p- sorry, p- big cheer for Peter, who is clicking my slides. Feel free to just sort of click through these as I run through them. Yeah, I, I, won't, I won't cue each one. Um, we know that one in five 12-year-olds... 12, 12-year-olds 12 are saying that they are struggling with anxiety. I, I would challenge that. It's, it's so hard in this field to keep up with the statistics and the change. So I cannot tell you how much um, anxiety I see in my inbox, how many referrals I'm getting. Uh, right now it is SATS time of year, isn't it? And I cannot tell you how many referrals I've had literally in the last two weeks of 10-year-olds struggling with acute anxiety, panic attacks, and school refusal that seems to be linked to, to SATS and some of the challenges they're seeing. So anxiety is a huge issue. There are things like eating disorders, which we see rates that are very high. So um, a fairly reliable statistic that around a quarter of teenage girls will self-report as struggling with some kind of eating disorder. The figures for how much of that would be diagnosable as a clinical eating disorder vary a little. But we know that young girls and increasingly boys are reporting quite high distress around body image, eating, weight, those sorts of anxieties. And in our Instagram culture, um, as, as Amy has just said the pressure to present a perfect image of yourself is acute. Uh, Self-harm as well is another issue that's very common and we know that there has been a 68% rise in rates of self-harm between, this is again a statistic for girls, 13 to 16 year old girls, but again we're seeing a rise in boys who are self-harming. We also see a change at the age of onset and again increasingly seeing younger primary age children who are starting to struggle with self-harm. If we move out of just clinical issues, we're also seeing signs that young people are struggling with some everyday abilities, with some of the the basic skills of everyday life. So, for example, two-thirds of children do not get enough sleep. When I talk to teenagers in schools about um, some of the the sort of uh, emotional health five a day, what are five things that you could do every day to improve and maintain your emotional health? The one that is most hotly debated with teenagers is sleep because I talk about how important sleep is and how much sleep they should be getting. And it's remarkable, A, how little sleep most of them are getting, but also that they think that that's 
absolutely fine. So I'm talking to 14, 15-year-olds who are sleeping five or six hours a night. And, and that would cripple me. I cannot tell you how rubbish I would be talking to all of you lot if I was only sleeping five to six hours a night. Um, and yet these young people, that's how they're living their everyday life. Um, that's the level of, of, of sleep that they're getting. So we know there are some issues here that young people are struggling with. Some of them are not sleeping because they're video gaming all night or they're on WhatsApp all night. However, some of them, many of them, are struggling to sleep. They are trying. And again, one of the most common referrals that I get from teenagers is teenagers who just cannot sleep, struggling with insomnia, struggling with associated anxiety, um, and particularly around exam times at difficult times, are really struggling with that. So in the midst of all this, of course, we therefore come to talk about this buzzword, such a popular issue now, this question around resilience. So resilience defined as the capacity to recover from life's difficulties. Um, How do we spring back when there have been challenges and pressures thrown at us? I love um, this, this little picture of the little chimp sheltering from the rain. Resilience is about our adaptivity and our creativity in the face of adversity. You could quite reasonably say that one of Uh, the biggest challenges for adolescents in particular, and one of our jobs as parents and adults supporting them, is to teach them, how do you respond to adversity? One of the most basic truths from the Bible, if you think of the, the story of the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand, is that whatever you do, whatever your approach to life, whether you get everything right or whether your approach is a little bit more sandy, a little bit more risky, in both cases, storms will come. The Bible says in both stories that the rains came, the winds blew and beat against that house. So how do we teach young people skills and emotional toolkits that enables them to manage adversity? And even more than that, how do we enable them to bring something beautiful out of challenges? Look at this, this beautiful tree covered in the frost. Sometimes actually what adversity does is even more than just something, being something that we survive through. These are the moments in our life that shape us, that grow us. And in terms of faith, in terms of emotional maturity, I'm sure many of us would look back and say that some of the key significant moments in our life were actually challenging. So we need to teach young people that success is not about never falling down. It's about what do you do when you get knocked down? How do you stand up again? What happens next after those moments that are so difficult? We have to talk to them about uh, the F word, not the one that my daughter is so excited about, but failure, a word that they are a lot less willing to utter. We have to talk about failure. It's interesting, isn't it? We, as a family, spent two years in France, um, and my daughter went to French school there. And one of the most interesting cultural differences between French school and English school is how they grade tests. So in the UK, you get like 18 out of 20, and there's a lot of, well, in primary school anyway, there's a lot of stars and well done and general cheering on. In France, they grade everything you do in school by how many mistakes you made. So your grade is 64F. That would be 64 faults. And and they really do every little missed apostrophe. And there's a lot of these little squiggles in the French language. Every time you miss one, they add it up. So that's the grade you get. And my daughter's first few uh, papers that she got back from France, that there was there was some shouting because she was it was totally new to her to be marked in this way. 
But very quickly, as she got used to it, she, something really interesting started to happen. And this child who I'd seen, who is a bit of a perfectionist, um, and who also, by the way, in case anyone's worried, uh, charge me, charges me commission every time I use her as an example. So she's making a fortune out of this. <laughs> um, so don't feel bad for her. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, she's a very wily 13-year-old. But so in England, what I saw was a child who increasingly was quite afraid of failure. She'd actually never failed in her life because she's very bright, very able, but increasingly was quite, getting, quite anxious about it. In France, what I saw was a child who learned to fail because she did it every single time she took a test, every single time she handed a paper in. And it's interesting, isn't it? We're now back, and she talks a lot about this. She talks a lot about the attitude of her friends to failure and how it doesn't matter. In France, uh, when she had a particularly, a particularly infamous dodgy dictée, which is where you have they, they read something out, you have to write it down and get all those little squiggles in the right place, where she came out with 256 faults. <laughs> That's probably another pound I owe her now. Um, her response to that, and this was the kid who would have cried for a day before we went to France, her response was, well, mummy, it's fair, I didn't really work very hard. So she'd learned something. So it's interesting, isn't it? We have to talk about some of these things with young people. And of course, we need to be aware that as we help them manage the challenges of life, that their teenage brain is not the same as an adult brain. There are differences. Not, not quite. This is not an accurate psychological depiction of the teenage brain. <laughs> yeah. But we have to be aware that this is a time of dramatic and rapid change. So I have at home my daughter who is 13. I also have my son who I should tell more stories about because he's not old enough to get commission yet because he's only six. Now, we know that Nathan, my son, has just come through a time of dramatic and rapid change because he was a toddler, and we would expect that of him. We know he's not an adult. It's so obvious. My daughter, who is 13, taller than me, does a lot of things better than me, knows how to use my phone better than I do. You could so easily look at her and make the mistake of thinking that she is an adult, that she has an adult brain. She does not yet. Her mind is still in a period of as dramatic change, even down at a biological level in terms of the connections that are forming and developing and being modified in her brain. So particularly for these young people who will struggle with issues like emotions, motivation, attention, who are hardwired to obsess about certain topics, relationships, what people think of them, who they are and aren't, they in particular will struggle with some of the things that life is throwing at them. So we can say that adolescence in particular is a stormy time. We can see that for children, even before they enter this phase, there are storms, there are challenges that life is throwing. As they're tossed around on those stormy waters, how can we support them? How can we help them to develop a better toolkit? And is mindfulness part of that toolkit? Mindfulness has been enthusiastically adopted by many, many schools. But what actually does the research tell us about the impact of it? And, and there is evidence both for and against. If we think about evidence for, first of all, there are many studies that show a positive impact of teaching mindfulness with children and young people, both in terms of preventative work, but also treating or supporting those who are already struggling to some degree with some of the issues that I've talked about. We know also that trait mindfulness, which has been mentioned already, so your sort of personality tendency to be more mindful or not, the more 
the higher trait mindfulness you have, uh, the less your risk of struggling with issues like stress and anxiety. So we know there is some kind of intrinsic link there. In theory, if we can help people develop better mindfulness skills, we can help them manage some of the stress that they're coming across. However, there is some evidence that are some questions um, I've, I've put against up here. It's probably not that strong, but there are some questions coming out. As we do more research looking at the use of mindfulness in these contexts, there are questions being raised. And I want to just run through a couple of those with you. The first is about the age group that you use it at. So is there a, a point at which children and young people just developmentally become able to, to, to manage the challenges of doing mindfulness? Is there something about this? the age groups that we can and should be using it with. And there's varying research showing its use in different contexts, certainly with the later primary years, 9 to 11 or so, and also very good results with older teens. What's interesting is some questions that are coming out about its use in the sort of mid-adolescence group. So actually, this would be the age group that my daughter would fall right in the middle of. Um, I love this quote, which is um, from a study that was looking at the use of mindfulness with teenagers. Um, it says, despite the added capacity compared with younger kids for abstract thought to allow skills such as metacognition to unfold, perhaps more cynical early adolescents require increased life challenges before the relevance of socio-emotional tools become evident. That's basically psychologists for they won't flipping listen to a word we say. <laughs> as far as I can gather. <laughs> But there is an interesting question, is at this age, will they engage with it enough for it to be useful? Every psychologist, every therapist knows it doesn't matter how clever your tools are. If the person you're talking to won't engage with it, they're not going to get anything out of it. So there is a question about age group, about how and, how and who we teach this to. There's a question about the setting that we teach it in. So many, many schools using mindfulness in schools. In fact, Mindfulness for Schools, an organization doing this, says that over 4,000 teachers in this country are now trained to use mindfulness in those contexts. But do programs in schools actually have any impact? And the studies would suggest there's questions around dose, so, so how much mindfulness we use, and delivery, how and when we teach it. Again, this is, this is an interesting quote. This is a, a chap called Jason more from Queen's School in Kew um, quoted uh, in an article talking about how he uses mindfulness in the school in which he's employed. Uh, he says, um, at the school where I teach when year six were taking their sats, I led a short mindfulness session before they started the exam each morning. By connecting with the present moment and letting go of fears and anxieties, they were able to focus on the exam and visualize themselves doing a good job. Interesting use of mindfulness and probably very typical so when I go into schools and talk to students and teachers, the, the, the most common use of mindfulness is just like this. Two, three, four-minute sessions at the beginning of each day, usually led by a teacher who probably won't have a lot of training in mindfulness. So there's a question around, is this really enough? Is this actually going to help the students that it's being used with? Are, are there even any risks of doing mindfulness in this way, in a much more casual way, or is it... As it, as it feels to these teachers, is it something that is so simple that you can use it fairly easily with a large group of students? One of the attractions of mindfulness is its apparent simplicity. So there's some questions around that. And, and that leads into questions of who you use mindfulness with. So whether that's 
a preventative approach that you teach students as part of their life skills or whether you refer students who are already struggling with a problem and need help to manage it. Um, there's even a question over whether for some students it might make some of them worse. So there's some interesting studies looking at the use of mindfulness to look at things like body concern that shows that students who didn't have any level of body concern before, who'd literally never thought about it, might even demonstrate a raised anxiety following a mindfulness program. So do we have to be careful about how we apply this stuff, who we use it? Are there some children and young people for whom it isn't appropriate? And then finally, the interesting question of how you involve parents. So we know if we're working with children and young people that one of the most influential uh, pressures on them is the home environment, the family environment. And again, research shows strongly that mindfulness has a better impact if you can engage parents with that process, if you can teach the parents as well as the children and young people. But what the studies also say is that parental engagement is classically very poor. One study finding only 8% of parents invited actually came. So how do we engage parents in this? How do we support the teenagers and the young people who we're trying to teach? And how do we teach mindfulness programs in schools and with children and young people that are really effective? And what I want to do now, actually, is introduce a fantastic friend and colleague of mine, Karen. Karen, come on, let's give Karen a bit of a cheer. Encourage her. Here's Karen's microphone. Hi. So Karen is an amazing colleague of mine working in schools. Should we move That's these right. out of your window so you've got some space? With those. children and young people. Those. So rather than talk myself about what works and how to do this effectively, yeah, go ahead. I thought I would introduce Karen and ask her if she would mind sharing some of her experience and her wisdom with you. So Karen, why don't you kick off, introduce, tell these lovely ladies and gentlemen who you are, some of your background. I've never done anything like this before in my life, so I am a little bit shaky. They are not at all scary, are they? (laughs) No. No. See? I need I to just tell my amygdala to calm down, actually. <laughs> That's such a mindfulness <laughs> joke. <laughs> um, so I am a specialist learning mentor for a college. Um, the, it, there's only 22 students, so every student at the college has a diagnosis of ASD, um, emotional behaviour difficulties. Um, I work with people who uh, self-harm. And... Uh, so I'm quite experienced with working with young people who have difficulties. Um, I went and did a mindfulness course for myself. I um, have difficulties speaking in public. And, uh, <laughs> and I needed to go out and, and do something about it. So I did a, a mindfulness course. And it really did change me. It's, it really has done a lot for me. Um, I needed to train. I wanted to train. I wanted to get this out to all the young people I was working with because... The benefits were just extraordinary. Because you were working then in a college, yeah, working college, in a college setting. Yeah. But you've since been using mindfulness with quite a broad yes. age group in primary yes. and secondary, haven't you? So I went out and trained um, to deliver uh, to teens. And uh, I did a Dot B uh, course, which many of you may have heard of, um, and a youth mindfulness course. Um, together with a partner, we then um, created... Uh, she was, she's a CBT therapist, we created a special teen course. So we're, I'm out delivering that now. So I'm working with primary school, um, senior schools, both girls and boys and mixed, college and one-to-ones. Oh, and sixth formers as well. Great. Yeah. 
And tell us, how have you found demand for the programs that you're running? So demand is increasing. It's increasing with, in the town that we live in. Um, the word's getting out there, the, the benefits. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the issues we're having, though, is with funding. So all the schools want it, but they haven't got the money to pay for it. So that's But increasingly, you are getting involved in schools, in secondary schools. Yeah. Talk about some of the other settings. So you're working in schools. What other settings are you working in? Um, I have worked for a local health centre, so a wellbeing centre. Uh, that's in collaboration, again, with schools. They have found some funding. And uh, together with the partner I mentioned earlier, we're going out and working with different age groups in our local community for the wellbeing centre. And talk, share a little bit with everybody about the impact that you're seeing mindfulness have with the children and young people that you're working with. Okay, so um, I must just say that the course, I need to share this because yeah, go um, ahead. many people don't realise that the course... Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, the, um, the course covers lots of different attitudes and I think that it's important um, we... I share with you what those are. Yeah, tell um, us a little bit about the course so and what's involved. So we in work on great. attention, allowing and letting things be, um, a beginner's mind, so seeing the good, trying to have um, an open mind and experience things for um, as they are, being a good friend, kindness to yourself, kindness to others, willpower. Uh, we work on gratitude. Thoughts are not facts. Um, that's mind sight. Taking care of ourselves. So we look at achieve, connect, enjoy, all the things that make up a, a healthy life. And then we do something about uh, looking back over our life and looking forward. So over how many weeks do you cover? All, that sounds like some amazing topics. But how many weeks does that take? How many sessions? Um, about a 10-week course. About 10 weeks. And yeah. how long is each session? Just to go into the detail hour, of it. Hour and 15. Hour and 15. Yeah. And do you work in small groups or one-to-one? -one? Um, groups at the moment are about 16. 16 per group? Yeah. 16 young people, yeah. But that drops. Okay. We, which we might talk yeah. about that in a minute, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, and tell us, while we're talking about the nature of the course you run, what's the difference in running it for primary age with secondary age, because I, I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed. Karen teaches mindfulness courses to children as young as seven, and I am going to challenge her to get my six-year-old son and see if she can make him sit still for longer than about ten seconds. It's a challenge. But, so tell us, let, let's talk about the youngsters first then. So when you run this yeah. course with primary students, how does that go? How do you adapt it for them? Okay, so um, the practices we would do would be different. There would be small, uh, shorter practices, a lot simpler. Um, we are training our mind, we are training our attention, and I think it's really um, interesting to see young people as, as seven struggle to sit still. They really, really do. And they also, what I, what I find is that the, um, the, the already at that age, they're expecting an, uh, something from an experience, so mm. they're pushing and pulling. They might want it to be really, really wonderful. And that doesn't actually happen. And they also can get bored very easily. So it's, it's very interesting to say to them, well, isn't that interesting? You know, why don't you just let the boredom be there? What is the boredom like for you? Where do you feel the boredom in your, in your body? 
Um, so uh, I, th- I find that that age group, we're looking more at, the, at attention. Um, and uh, being a good friend is, is really good. So it's really, they really learn a lot from that. What is, what is, what is being a good friend? Um, I, I think also um, they learn... Sorry, I've got some notes here. Um, That's fine. Go ahead. Catch yourself up. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh. So gratitude as well. That's what I wanted to mention. Um, gratitude. Um, being aware of the things that they have. How do you teach that to seven-year-olds? <laughs> so this is just becoming a personal interest now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so one of the things we do is we write a gratitude letter. Great. We do a mindfulness practice. We ask the young people to think about someone they care about. And um, we send them some love. And then we ask them to write them a letter. And the actual result from that is, is the, um, when we show gratitude that we actually feel happy. And, and it's an amazing opportunity to spend some time talking with even young children about some of these topics. So how does it differ then when you apply these courses to secondary school s- students? What's the diff- what are the main differences? Okay, so this is where I come alive because okay. working with teens is just a real privilege and um, I've got some real strong evidence here, a stack of feedback. Um, I'd love to read you all of it, but it'll we'll take read, a long time. We'll read some at the end, I promise, yeah. yeah. Um, teenagers... I think get a lot um, from this about um, themselves. I think that they, sorry, they grow in confidence and resilience. Um, they start to take responsibility for their own mind. Actually, their mental health is, is their responsibility. They have to look after themselves just as we would going to the gym, eating well, and doing things that we enjoy. I think young people have to take responsibility for mm. looking after their minds as well. And what's your experience of that engagement issue? So I talked before you came up about some of these questions about how able teenagers of different ages are to engage with it. What's your experience of that? Yes, well, uh, we yes, do, well. I do have a dropout rate. So um, uh, there's you know, 15, 16 students that all come for the taster session, week two, week three, and that's when we, I start to lose some of the students. So um, I think there's a point at which they think this is not for me, and that's fair enough. Mm. And is your sense yeah. that that's about ability, that some students are more able than others to engage with this, or is it something to do with the setting that you're teaching? Because I know some students are sent to see you, and possibly when they find out that they don't have to stay, probably might not. Yes, that's true, that's true. Yeah. Um, I did have a situation where sometimes it's just the environment. So I mm. worked with a group of young girls um, on a course, and the course was being held in the sixth form centre. So they were really uncomfortable with just being in that environment. And it actually was wasn't, to them. Yeah, mm. it wasn't until the end of the course I realised that that was probably what was going on. Mm. And the school laid on some revision courses and half the students <laughs> disappeared. So, yeah. yeah. And I think it's an interesting reflection when we're thinking about offering therapeutic input like this to, th- to think about the context you're doing it in. And there's some interesting questions around how able students are in a school environment that is quite fraught, quite pressured. Mm. Was it, tell the story you were telling on the way here about when you'd just been teaching the primary students and then the, the teacher. Oh, has, yes. Yeah. I had a wonderful uh, session with some primary students. It was the first time we'd had a, a lie down, had a nice mindful mountain exercise. 
And uh, so we'd finished, and uh, a teacher came in and started shouting at them. <laughs> it's two minutes till the bell, two minutes. Come on, come on, everybody up, 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 out, out. And uh, I just thought, okay. So, so there are yeah. some challenges yeah. to the context yeah. if you're teaching it in schools. Definitely. Um, while we're talking about the use of mindfulness in schools then, tell me a bit more about that. What you are really, you're very experienced, you've taught it in primary schools, secondary schools, college settings. Can you share some thoughts about what is important if we're going to use mindfulness in schools effectively? Um, yes, I think uh, teacher engagement, the school really embracing it too. It would be really good for all teachers to learn. But again, there's, there's a... There's difficulty in that. For teachers to, do you mean to, to train? To do the course, to train. And, and to be properly trained. Yeah. Because I, I, certainly the teachers I'm seeing, many of them are uh, teaching mindfulness skills, which it, when you chat to them, it turns out they have just read off the internet. I, I have a really good friend, a very close friend of mine, who delivers mindfulness in schools, and she's never done any training at all. Um, the course that I run is, is very specific, and again, I've, I've told you the, the, um, the disciplines that it, it, you know, it's, it's trying to get out there, the message. And I think it's very important that mm. it's a full course, that the students attend each week, and they get the real experience of a full mindfulness course. So that's about this dose question. And so mm. have you also encountered schools that are using it very much in a small five-minute, yes. if that dose... I have and been what asked are your thoughts to. on that? Because what you do mm. clearly isn't that. If I get no. you into a school, you're not going to come and lead a three-minute mindfulness moment at the end of assembly. No. So I have been asked to do workshops, um, quick short courses, um, do 20 minutes, um, you know, condense the course into shorter periods of time. And, and it's a no. It's an it's a absolute no. It's not going to happen. Mm. So there's something yeah. about the... The skill, the training, the experience of the person delivering it. And I know if you feel free to come and chat to Karen in the coffee breaks, but you will find from chatting to her that actually there is a lot of skill goes into what you're doing. Mm. Um, delivery, but also sensing how the students are responding to it, adapting what you're teaching according to how it's going. Um, and I think perhaps that if people aren't as skilled, then they're not going to be able to do that. Especially when we come to thinking about difficulty and, and coping with difficulty. Um, we do get some sensitive issues come up, and that has to be handled correctly. So there's a caution there, there about is, there being is a caution. wise about who and how you mm. teach, but also doing it properly. Mm. But there, there is a thing about letting things be. So we are trying to teach young people to uh, be with the difficulty. That's one of the struggles they have. They, need, they fight it, they want to push it away, and we're trying to teach them to just see if you can let it be there. Mm. Mm, definitely. So talk, Karen, a little bit about the use of mindfulness with young people with some kind of additional need. So that would include your experience, include teaching students who've got, had struggles with things like anxiety, self-harm, through to additional needs like um, autistic spectrum disorders, ADHD, things like that. Which yep. do you want to start yep. with? Tell so, us a little so, bit about that. So, well, those. working with these students who have difficulties um, is a pleasure anyway, and, and uh, I've and got lots of experience. Of yours. Yeah, and yeah. I've got 10 years' experience and training with autism, ADHD. Um, what I found, and it's not for every child, again, there has to be a desire to do this, um, but um, I have found uh, it's been really helpful with things like travel training, uh, exam stress attention difficulties, 
Um, I think asking some of these young people to come down and feel their body is very, very difficult mm. for, for some of them. And again, I think that's why uh, we do have a, a dropout. Um, people do choose not to continue with it. Um, but those who do continue, they, they really see a change. I've, and, I've seen a change. And you've found it to be effective with all these different groups, student groups. So do you want to talk about some of those specific issues? What about uh, anxiety? I know you've done a lot of work with students struggling with anxiety and panic. Yeah. Anxiety and panic, social, show, social, social anxiety. anxiety. It's very, very helpful for social anxiety. I think it builds up uh, some self-esteem, confidence. Uh, and I think that's mainly about... Um, the, uh, once we discuss overthinking and, and how we berate ourselves, I think actually the students realise that, that this, this voice they have in their head is not necessarily speaking the truth. So when we investigate that, they, they get a huge sense of relief from understanding that they're, they're not, you know, they're all the same. We all, we all actually experience this and they don't have to actually believe everything that they think. Mm. And I think that's an important point because really if you, if you look and ask Karen to share with you later some of the material that she's teaching, you are applying mindfulness techniques and skills to, to a range of other topics, aren't you? So you're talking about anxiety, right. but applying a skills that you've taught these young people to a challenge like that. Absolutely. So if they're on a bus and them. they've got to go to an interview for a college uh, course and they can bring their mindfulness into being on that bus journey, they can listen to sounds, they can feel their feet, and they can use the techniques that they're taught on the course. So tell us about um, some of the other additional needs that you work with, so autistic spectrum, ADHD, things like that, because these are common challenges for young people now, and particularly in school settings, so, and you're very experienced with working with these, aren't you, so share a bit about that. About the... Yeah, about your using mindfulness with, these, with children who are struggling, for example, with um, autistic spectrum yeah. disorders. Okay, so being a learning mentor um, and a coach, so we sit down and we work out ways to, to make their, their difficulties a bit easier for them. And um, I'm able to bring mindfulness into that in a one-to-one -one situation and give them some coping strategies. So do you work more often one-to-one -one with students where there's another significant need like this? rather yes. than group settings. Yes, both. Yeah, yeah. 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 both. And, and you found it to be effective? Yes, yes. We, um, we have, well, it, it was mentioned, um, the college I work in, um, it was noticed as being so successful that they've allowed me to run with it, so I'm now able to, you know, officially uh, do mindfulness. So. <laughs> As opposed to just undercover. As opposed to under, yeah. I like Don't the tell idea anyone. Of sort of Feel MI your feet. Mindfulness agent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you're now officially doing it. So um, we'll, we'll give some time a minute so you can share some comments from, from some of your young people. But um, just when we were chatting about this, you were talking about how sometimes there are young people for whom you feel this isn't appropriate. And I think that's an important thing to share. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I have come across students who have had psychosis. Um, and have shown early signs of that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't entertain the idea of doing any meditation with someone who was showing uh, mental health difficulties. More significant yeah, mental more health significant. difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. are there other issues that you would sort of notice that would make you cautious? I know you talked about how you adapt sometimes what you're teaching to young people if you're aware of other issues. 
Yeah, I think I would keep it more of grounding exercises uh, for some students who have a high imagination, maybe, mm-hmm. and who find it difficult to, to remain in, in reality. I, w- I would actually do more um, body scans and things like that. Mm. Um, breathing exercises. So particularly if you're working one-to-one with a young person who has some other needs, you're going to be very aware of what they are and of adapting. And I think, I guess there's just an awareness there as, again, coming back to this issue of people who are less skilled sometimes using some of these approaches. I imagine that you would recommend strongly that if people are interested in this stuff that they attend a great course, get some really good training and grounding. Essentially, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Great. Well, I would love, before we move on, uh, just to to give some time to some of the young people you've worked with. So I know you have chatted to some of them about, can you share some things that they've um, written? Tell us about what you're about to share, and then you can read some. The last session we do is um, looking back, looking forward. So we we look back over the course over the 10 weeks, and then I ask them to write a letter to themselves in the future, and that I'm going to post the letter to them. Um, they won't know when it's coming. So I did actually, uh, just this term, I've finished a course, and I asked some of the students to, if I could have a copy, if they didn't mind me actually having a copy of their letter, just so I could share it with with some of you. And I I got four um, out of the 14. So I'm going to share with you. So I think it says a lot. Breathe. Just take a moment to look back and remember every mindful thing you've learned from Karen. Keep in mind everything you've learned. Ground yourself. Focus on your breath and let your thoughts just be there. Come on, remember when you laughed hysterically for no reason. That was because you, believe it or not, you felt happy. Now you're probably in year 11 and the dreaded exams are approaching. Don't stress. And more importantly, do this for yourself, no one else. It's your future, and you've got this. Look, you don't need to worry. You're stronger than you think. Don't dwell on the unhappy days, the past. You've got a pretty good future in front of you. Just say to yourself, I can succeed, I can socialise, I can be strong, and I can pass my exams. Lots of love, your past self. So, mindfulness has not only been a lesson, but it has changed your life. You have learned, you have learned not only to think, to over, not to overthink and to keep calm in situations. It has given me a reminder that I can do things. Hopefully now you have found something you truly love that will make you happy and you can do for the rest of your life. Mindfulness has taught me that you don't need this hunger inside for you to be somebody you're not. Despite all you will say to contradict this, you are great. Stay ambitious. You can succeed. (laughs) Okay. Hi, beautiful. It's me, yourself. (laughs) from mindfulness you've learned how to control your anxiety and you have started to barely ever feel anxious which is great love heart at the moment you are struggling with your weight and your self-esteem but you need to know that you look perfect 
Many people like you just the way you are and you don't need to change for anyone. I can achieve and I will do well in all my subjects. One of my friends said, GCSEs don't matter, but they really do. And I am going to start working hard to get them. You are stronger than you think. You really are. Dream big and go and achieve whatever it is you want. I'll just do one more. Dear future me, mindfulness has taught me that you don't have to try to control your emotions. They will come and go and that's okay. You don't have to be perfectly happy all the time. I hope that when you read this, you are content and aren't exhausting yourself, trying to achieve that perfect life. You are doing so well as I'm writing this. You're going through a difficult time, but it will pass, just as many times before have. I can make friends and people like me for the real me. I have confidence to be honest about who I am. Mindfulness can help ground you when you get caught in the spiral. It won't necessarily get rid of the thoughts, but you don't need to be rid of them. Just let them be there. That's a part of life. You will succeed in whatever you're doing. And as you read this, I want you to know you are strong and capable. Fantastic. Isn't that great? Really inspiring. Thank you, Karen. That's all positive feedback. So, yeah. And these are the people who stayed on the course, I must admit. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you're self-selecting yeah. to some degree, students These who have engaged who well with it. But it's inspiring, it, so. isn't it? And it's interesting to think about yeah. how you can help the students who struggle to engage to do better, because clearly the impact for those who do is great. Thank you so much for coming and sharing Thank you. Sorry I was shaking. Maybe I'll be better next Hasn't time. Hasn't you done well? <laughs> you're a good advert yourself. <laughs> you guys sit Thank you. Great. Thank you. I, mean, I hope we've inspired you. But also, it's good to think about the practicalities of how we do this so that it's effective. To recognize that it isn't always as simple as just doing a quick mindfulness three minutes at the beginning of the day, but that the potential impact is really great. So definitely something worth considering. Thank you very much.